The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's grab our Bibles, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, of course, I'll read them a little bit later. Uh, and most of our message will be taken from other texts. But tonight we're going to conclude a three-part mini-series on the grace of God. And this is a series of lessons I, I taught to the teenagers in uh, the teen group. Probably, I'd say, seven, eight years ago. So if you're a teenager here tonight and you were in my group seven or eight years ago, you might remember this. I kind of doubt if you will. But uh, it was a 26-lesson series on the grace of God. And the messages I've been preaching, the message I, I preached two weeks ago, the message I preached last Wednesday, and this message were the final three of that series. It was the summation of the entire study. So what I'm giving you, what I've been giving you is kind of an encapsulation of, of 23 weeks of study. And uh, we looked at the grace of God from every angle, from every direction. And um, I don't know how much they learned when we did that study, but I came away from that with a much better understanding of God's grace. Um, I'd, I'd been visiting my brother in Houston, and he took me to a bookstore and wanted to buy me a book. And so we went through the bookstore and looked, and I, I found this, this book on the grace of God, and I purchased it. And reading that book kind of inspired me to, to do a, a study on the grace of God. So tonight we're going to wrap it up. We're going to finish it up by talking about the manifestation of grace. And so far we've looked at uh, two, two different studies. first one was the majesty of grace. And we looked at, at how majestic God's grace really is. We, we saw first that it was seen in the plan of grace. In, in, in eternity past, God, uh, God planned and ordained and, and established his grace among his people. It was seen, we saw, the majesty was seen in the provision of grace, the way in which God delivered grace to us through uh, the sacrifice of himself, in, in the form of man on the cross. And then we also saw that the majesty of grace is seen in the perseverance of grace. Uh, how that throughout our entire life, uh, we, we continue to, to need and, and God continues to provide us with grace. I, I, I said that there is grace unto salvation, but beyond that, we also studied and saw that the God gives us grace for life, grace for living. He gives us, continues to give us grace uh, on a daily basis. And uh, we, the grace we, we the, the grace in salvation is grace we receive from God. But the grace for life is the grace that God gives us to, to give out in our, in our testimony, in our life, in the way in which we conduct ourselves. Uh, everybody understand that. Uh, so he gives us, he gives us grace with, and, and we, we receive grace unto salvation, but then 
we impart grace unto those around us in our daily lives. Uh, so we, we saw that in the majesty of grace. Then last Wednesday evening, we studied the magnitude of grace. And we, we saw that grace is not limited to just what we have now. We saw in our study of the magnitude of grace that grace reached into past history. If you remember, we read from Genesis last week, and we saw that the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So grace existed at the time of of Noah. Grace existed at the time of Adam and Eve. Grace existed before God framed the worlds. So the magnitude of God's grace isn't limited to just this century or or just this era in the church age, but it reached all the way back into past history. We saw also that the grace of God abides uh, in present circumstances. In our everyday life, God gives us grace. And we talked a little bit about Paul and how Paul went to the Lord and besought the Lord three times that the Lord would remove his infirmity. And what was God's answer to Paul? He told Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. He said, Paul, you don't need anything else. You have my grace. That's all you need in life. So we see that despite, regardless of what circumstances we may be in in our lives, that grace is presently with us and God's grace for us to be able to conduct ourselves with faith and with perseverance exists in today's um, present day. And then also we saw that the magnitude of grace, we saw that grace will serve us in prospective victories, uh, future victories, future troubles we face, uh, problems down the road. Those of you with young children, uh, hang on to your hats because you're going to have many heartaches and many agonies in the coming years. And, and there are lots of things we face raising children in this world. You're constantly worried about their, what's going to happen to them, uh, who's going to influence them. Uh, you know, these things, you, we go through life and we face all of these trials and all of these things. Uh, well, God's grace reaches forward and serves us in those times as well. And we are guaranteed, we are promised the victory, are we not? Now, victory may not necessarily mean success. Uh, sometimes sometimes uh, life turns very sour. I mean, many, many, many Christian people die of, of disease and sickness. They die in, in terrible accidents and things like this. And someone may say, well, where's, where's the victory in that? Where's the joy in that? Well, uh, if they're a child of God, the joy is that to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. That's right. And there's your victory. So grace, we, we, face, we face trials and we face troubles and disappointments with the knowledge and the assurance that no matter what happens in this present time, no matter what happens to me in this body, I will be victorious with Christ. And it gives us the courage and it gives us the grace to face all the things we must face. I love the song Saved by Grace. It goes like this. Someday the silver cord will break and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story, saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story, saved by grace.
So we've seen the majesty of grace. We've seen the magnitude of grace. And now tonight, I would like to finish this series by considering the manifestation of grace. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3 together. And we'll read verses 6 through 8. We read here that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we've had these last few weeks to study uh, this, this subject of the great grace of God. And I pray tonight that you would help us to end this series with a full understanding and comprehension of how wonderful uh, and how amazing your grace truly is. Thank you for this time now. We ask that you comfort the pastor tonight and ease his, his pain and give him a good night's rest. And uh, we just ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Manifestation is the act of disclosing something by clear evidence. Uh, Certainly one would have to admit that the doctrines of grace stir up contention among believers. Um, Yet this single doctrine is the most important of all. If we have the wrong beliefs concerning grace, then all of our other doctrines will be out of sync with God and his sovereignty. While many will vehemently deny the doctrine of of election and grace, this doctrine is clearly manifested by at least three modes. First, it is seen in the purpose of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, we read, Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. In this second book to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that our salvation and our calling were not according to our own works of righteousness. It was according to God's own purpose, and it was by his grace. Uh, Yes, there is a purpose in grace. And in the means by which God distributes grace. Um, first of all, this purpose includes salvation. When we talk about the purpose of the grace of God, it, it does include salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we read, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we see that this grace and the faith to trust and believe in Christ, were gifts of God. They were, not, they were not earned, they were not merited by our works or by our efforts. We must understand this. We must understand that nothing that I can do in my body, nothing that I can do in my flesh, is pleasing or satisfying unto God. Only those things that I do within the new creation of God Only the things that I do in the fullness of the Holy Spirit are pleasing unto God. So we we need to understand what this flesh is. We talked about this uh, before. It's 
It's depraved. Didn't we, didn't we discuss that? The depth of our depravity. Uh, we, we looked at that a couple of Sunday mornings ago. How, how depraved we truly are. And this flesh that we're wrapped in can offer nothing good to Christ. We must understand that. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul understood that he was a, he was a murderer. He, he went about murdering believers, murdering Christians. He hated, he hated the doctrines of God. He hated Jesus Christ. And Paul, Paul knew that it was but by God's grace that he was ever able to accomplish anything of use or profit to God. God purposed, he said in his own heart, to redeem a people unto himself. And this redemption is the result of God's grace. Salvation was not and is not the focal point of grace. Grace is much deeper than simply salvation. However, salvation is certainly a part of grace. But we must understand that God's grace is not limited in that one area. Uh, what was the focal, what is the focal point of God's grace? Anybody, anybody want to venture a guess? What is the focal point of God's grace? His glory. Yes. And one other thing we find in his word. His what? His sovereignty. God's sovereignty. His, his ultimate rule. His, his right to rule. His sovereignty and his glory is the focal point of grace. And salvation is one of the many byproducts we receive because of this grace. Lest we, lest we value ourselves above measure. Listen, God, God loves us and he, he elected us, he chose us, he called us and he saved us. But all of this was, was to, was to, to, to his glory, to glorify him and, and to, to assure his sovereign right in all things. So this, the purpose in, in grace includes salvation. But secondly, this purpose includes sanctification. <laughs> it includes sanctification. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we read, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The purpose in God's grace was, was definitely salvation, but it was also sanctification. To, as he, as he stated in verse 14, to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, when I look out amongst our crowd, I can definitely see some peculiar people. No doubt about that. But especially over in that section over there, uh, not the last one on the end and not the other two on the other side, but that one right there. <laughs> peculiar people. Um, but I want us to notice something. As we, as we look at this passage of scripture, Paul states that grace... God's grace has some things to teach us. Did you see that? Verse 12, teaching us. Now, we are to, 
where it teaches us some things. What does it teach us? First, grace teaches us to renounce sin. It teaches us to renounce sin. Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We are to renounce the things of this world. We are to renounce sin. Now, sin can be pleasing. Sin can be fun. I'd be, I, I would do an injustice if I stood here and told you that it's not. Uh, Moses, we know, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Uh, and, and, and so sin can allure us. Sin can, sin can draw the Christian in because it's fun. And sometimes it's funny. Sinful things sometimes are humorous and they cause us to laugh and, and they cause us to, 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 put, to, to put joy in what, what, what they exist. But the fact is they're sin, are they not? Uh, some actor gets on a television screen and uses a bunch of profanity in a, in a, in a comic situation. It can be funny. I, I mean, I know it can be. It can make you laugh. But it's sickening to God, is it not? It's repulsive to God. It's abominable. He hates it. So we're not to, we're not to involve ourselves in these things. We're to renounce sin. But how can we do this? How can we renounce sin? Well, there's two things I want to tell you. First, we have to resist it. We have to resist sin. James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist. Humble yourselves. Yield yourself. Submit yourself to God and say, Father, you speak to my heart concerning all things in my life. And those things that are not right, Father, I pray you give me the grace to resist them. Resist the devil. Uh, when, when you feel tempted, this is why we teach young children to memorize scripture. Because when you feel tempted, the Holy Spirit can bring to mind scriptures that you've learned. And, and, and by, by, by leaning on scripture, we can resist the devil. Um, we, by our own actions, empower most of the things that cause us to sin. Most of the things that we have trouble with, most of the things that cause us to, to fail, we are the ones that empowered them. We're the ones that brought them in to our own life. We went out and sought them. We, we went out and procured them. But what did the psalmist say in Psalm 101 and verse 3? I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. We have to be careful with this. Um, and, and, and it's so easy to fall in this area. We have to be careful about what we expose ourselves to, what we expose our children to. Uh, this, is, this is so critical in our lives. We, we need to be so careful. Television. There's a lot of bad things on television, folks. A lot of, a lot of really, really bad things. You know, my daddy, who is unsaved, had enough sense when he was raising us to know that you can't expose your children to those kind of things and expect them to turn out 
well and right. Television, internet. You know, the internet's a great powerful tool, it really is. But it's also, uh, it's also a private avenue to all the filth in the world. And I guarantee you there are first and second graders who probably are better at navigating the, the internet than I am. That's not saying a whole lot either. Uh, movies. You need to be careful about movies. Um, what, you, what you expose your children to. I've had Christian people come to me and say, you know, it's a really good movie. Yeah, there's a little bit cursing in it, but it's a really good movie. Oh, well, let's see. Did God rate that movie? Because I think he didn't rate it PG. He rated it U-G-L-Y. Um, we need to be careful about these things. These have corrupted our hearts and they've corrupted our minds. I used to, I used to share this with a, uh, my freshmen's in, in, in the Sunday school class. It was called a shock meter. And I had, this, I had this thing, you know, back in the 50s when television was first getting through, um, oh, man, censorship, you, it, was, it was, people were shocked by what they would see on television in the 50s. Any of you old enough to remember that? You willing to admit you're old enough to remember that? That uh, we didn't see I Dream of Jeannie's mid her belly? We didn't see her belly at first, did we? No, 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 no. And there, were, there was absolutely no profanity of any type on television. But over time, people get bored with that, and they, they want to be shocked a little bit, and the shock factor keeps increasing and keeps increasing and keeps increasing until we are where we are today. Back then, the shock, people used to be shocked way down here. Now, they're not shocked all the way to the ceiling. And it corrupts us. It corrupts our minds. It corrupts our hearts. So first, we need to resist. But then, secondly, how can we over? How can we renounce sin? Secondly, is renew. <coughs> renew. Romans chapter twelve and verse two. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Did you see that? He said, transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need, to, we need to change our thought process. We need to renew how we think. Well, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 4. Go there with me, if you will. Just a, just a couple of books back, Colossians, then, then Philippians. Or Philippians and Colossians, I'm sorry. Philippians and chapter number 4. I think probably most of you know where we're heading. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 7. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God will keep our hearts pure. He will keep our minds pure. If we renew our thinking, if we change our, our, our mind, renew our minds in the image of Christ. Now look at verse 8. Finally, brethren... Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. These are the things Paul tells us that we're to, we're to focus our, our minds on. 
Things that are, uh, look at what he says, things that are true, things that are honest, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are of good report, uh, things that are virtuous, things that are praiseworthy. These are the things we're to, we're to put our mind on. We're to change our, our thoughts. We're to renew our minds. And if we, if we, if we do these things, if we resist the evil, if we resist the wrong, and if we, if we, if we do not put things in front of our eyes that will corrupt us and cause us to fall, and if we change the way we view these things, and if we change the way we look at, at our life as believers, then we will be able to renounce sin. But grace, secondly, grace teaches us to rule self. It teaches us to rule. It te- grace teaches me to rule me, to control me. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, we read, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And that word soberly doesn't mean not drunk, although we shouldn't live drunk, but it means seriously. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Are you serious tonight? Let me ask you, are you serious about, about God? Think about it for a second. Are you serious about God? Or has this just become a habit? Do you simply come to church because, because it's a habit you develop? Do you come to church because, well, because my parents always went to church, and if I don't go, I'm going to disappoint them? Do you come to church out of a sense of, well, you know, I, got, I have to go to church today? Or, or do you say, I, 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 ha- I have the opportunity to go to church. I get to go to church today. What a joy it is. Uh, we're to be serious. Are you serious about, about God in your life? Uh, we are to govern our own hearts and bring our own bodies into subjection to the will of God. Uh, Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself, should be a castaway. Now let me make something real clear here. In our own fleshly power, we don't have the ability to, 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 to renounce sin. We don't. In our own bodies, we, we cannot possibly rule ourselves, our flesh. We can't. However, in the new creation, in the new creature that we are in Christ Jesus, God has enabled us. We studied this already, didn't we? He's empowered us. He's enabled us to live holy lives, to, to live righteously. So, we have, we have the power now. We have the authority to say no. We have the authority to not do those things we shouldn't. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I bring my body into subjection. Uh, I tell my feet, you're not going to walk into those places anymore. Hands, you're not going to touch those things. Eyes, you're not going to look at those things. Ears, you're not going to listen to those things anymore. You, you get your body under, under control. You get yourself under subjection. Don't fall for that old excuse, the devil made me do it. Flip Wilson coined that phrase back in the 70s. And it was so funny, everybody fell in love with it. The devil made me do it. No, the devil, let me tell you, the devil gets, I, I mentioned this, I think it was Sunday night maybe. The devil gets blamed for more things that he had nothing to do with. Uh, the devil doesn't need to tempt you. Your own flesh is your worst enemy. We, we, we do it to ourselves. But you see, by blaming the devil, we can ease our own guilty conscience a little bit. Because we can say, well, I, you know, the devil's strong and he, he's the one that knocked me down. No, 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 no. You knocked yourself down. 
You failed to you failed to bring your own body into subjection. You you wanted to do the things you did. So 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 just be honest about it. In James chapter one, he tells us in verses 13 and 14, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted. Now watch this when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed our own lusts. Our own, our own wicked desire. Remember, the Bible says that the heart of man deviseth wicked imaginations continually. Our own wicked hearts lure us into temptation and, 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 and our own lusts entice us into sin. So grace uh, teaches us some things. It teaches us to renounce sin. It teaches us to rule self. And then thirdly, grace teaches us to reverence God. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's grace teaches us to reverence God, to, to put God in, in, in holy awe and reverence, to fear him with a godly fear. And grace teaches us to reverence God. How do you reverence God in your life? Do your actions... Do the things you do glorify God? Do they, do they show respect unto God? Do they show fear unto God? Uh, the things you say, these things, do, does our behavior, does, does, does our priorities in life, do, do they reverence God? Listen, this is your primary purpose in life. What is our main purpose? Somebody. To glorify God. That is your main purpose. It's to glorify God. Everything else is secondary. That means you should glorify God on your job. You shouldn't be doing things on your job that dishonor the Lord. And if you're asked to do things that dishonor God, then sit down with your employer and tell him, listen. I'm sorry, but this is dishonest. I can't do it. it. It's wrong. I won't do it. Say, it might cost me my job. What do you want to lose, your job? Or do you want to lose uh, the respect of the Lord? Which one do you want to lose? Uh, I'd rather lose my job. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's do the right things on our job at home. Uh, husbands, take charge of your house. Take control of the television set. You decide what's, what's, what's allowed and what's not allowed for your children to watch. You decide. Don't let the kids decide. And, and wives, uh, if you have a husband that loves the Lord and is coming to church and is trying to do right, then get behind him. Back him up. You know, my mother and father, I'm trying to, re- I'm trying to figure this out. Let's see, 1946. My mother and father were married in 1945. How many years is that? Somebody do the math real quick. 60, 68? Thank you, George. 68 years my mother and father have been married. Do you know, I could count without any hands, I could count the number of times I've ever heard my mother disagree with my father. Never heard him argue, never heard him fight. They, they were completely united in front of us as children. 
My, my brother and sisters and I talk about this every time we get together. We, we never heard our mother and father argue. Now, now, maybe they did, but if they did, they did it away from us. They did it in private where we weren't going to see it. And my mom was not the type of lady that said, well, your daddy doesn't want you doing this, but he's not here, so go ahead and do it. No, 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 no. If we, if we did wrong, mom would whip us, and then dad would whip us again when he got home and found out we did it, and then he might whip us a third time just because we dared to do it. They were unified. They, they were together in this matter. And, and we need to be in our homes, in our marriages, in our, in our church. We need to reverence God in our church. And we need, we need to make sure that we don't bring a poor testimony into the house of the Lord. Uh, every student in our Sunday school class, every student in, a, in our, in our uh, even in our nursery, those children, how, how dare we? How dare we bring a poor testimony into this, into this house, into this place, and, and lay it before others to see? So g- grace teaches us to reverence God, to respect him. And then next, grace teaches us to respond diligently. Grace teaches us to respond diligently. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 we read, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Did you see that? A peculiar people. A people... What, what makes a person peculiar? Well, it's not because he's loony or because he's weird. Uh, you know, it's nothing like that. I had a, I had a, I had a, a physics teacher in college, who every day would walk in the class and he would drop a piece of chalk. And then he would look up because he said, someday the conditions are going to be perfect so that that when I drop this piece of chalk, it's going to disassemble itself and reassemble itself on the ceiling. Now, he was peculiar. (laughs) He definitely fit the mold of peculiar. And we did some very mean things to him. I won't tell you about them, but... He was definitely peculiar, but, but that's not what we're talking about. What is a peculiar person? It's a person that doesn't succumb to the world. That's a peculiar person. A person who's different. A person who's different on purpose. Who chooses not to align himself and, 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 and be, be friends with the world. Uh, a person who resists the lust of the eyes. A person who resists the lust of the flesh. A person who resists the pride of life. We are to be doers of the word. When you come, when you come to a church like this, grace teaches us to respond diligently. When you come to a church like this and you hear preaching and that preaching convicts you in your heart and, and you know it's right and you know you need to change, then don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Go out and do what you've learned, what you've heard from the, from the word of God. James chapter 1 and verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You see that? If all you do is you come to church, you hear the truth, and then you walk away and you don't make any changes in your life. You're just fooling yourself. You're just going through some motions. You're not, you're, you're not growing in Christ. You're not developing in the grace of God. You're deceiving yourself. Be a doer of the word. When I, when I first got saved, and, and certainly I'm no example, but when I first got saved, I'd go to church. I'd sit there and I'd hear some preaching about things in my life. And I'd walk out of there and I would change them. I would put them away. We need to be doers of the word. 
Far too many of God's children are hearers only. So we see that grace is manifested in his purpose. Then secondly tonight, uh, it, grace is manifested, it is seen in the person of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you see that? According to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but now is made manifest, what? By the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there would be no grace. This is why the devil worked so fervently to keep the Messiah from coming at all. In Matthew chapter 2, and verse 16, we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. The, the devil wanted so much to keep the Messiah from coming that he convinced Herod, he tempted Herod and convinced him to, to murder every child from two years old and down, all throughout the areas around Bethlehem. But then, even after Jesus came, he worked equally hard to destroy his righteousness. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And we see here in the passages that follow that the devil, the devil came to Jesus and tried to corrupt him tried to tempt him to, to fall from, from, from righteousness. But failing this, he then tried to keep him in the grave. Uh, we won't turn to it because we don't have time, but in Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 and through 66, we read now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the, that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So, so we see that these wicked Pharisees attempted to, to, to seal the, the, the mouth of the tomb to make sure Jesus couldn't come from the, from the grave. But alas, he failed in this as well. Then in Matthew 28, 2, we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And in verses 5 and 6, we read, And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Yes, grace is manifested in God's purpose. But it's also manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there would be no grace. But then thirdly tonight, and lastly, the manifestation of grace is seen in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Oh yes, the deliverance of God's grace is seen in the work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 
21 and 22, we read, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us as God, who, has, who hath also sealed us, and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Notice the word used by Paul here in this passage, the word earnest. This, this literally means something of value given by one person to another to bind a contract. So when, when the Bible talks about God has given us the earnest of the Spirit, what he's saying is that he has sealed us. He has given us him, himself. He has given us his, his Spirit, his power, his, his essence. He's given these things to us to bind a contract between himself and us. In other words, God has given us his Holy Spirit as collateral for our redemption. As long as we have the Holy Spirit... We have the grace of God. Can you lose the Holy Spirit? No, you can't lose the Holy Spirit. And as long as you have the Holy Spirit, you have the grace of God. Because the grace of God is manifested in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, it's a done deal. It's sealed. It's a guarantee. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let me ask you, do you you have that witness in your heart tonight? The Bible says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Do Do you have that witness within you? Well, if you don't, then you need to stop and, and go back and take a look at your redemption. And if you, if you, if you know that you're saved, but you don't, you don't have that strong witness, then you probably need to take a look at your life. Because you're, 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 you're just flat pouring cold water on the spirit. Quench not the spirit, the Bible tells us. We're, 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 we're simply working against in our life the work of the Holy Spirit. So we need to, we need to renew our hearts again, renew our minds, and, and, and do all these things. The grace of God. It is seen in his purpose. It is seen in the person of Christ. And it is seen in our lives by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What will we do? What will we do with this grace that's been given to us? Will we use it? Will we, will we learn to walk in the spirit? Will we, will we live a spirit-filled life? Will we, will we be serious? Will we be serious about God? Will we be serious about our, our walk with God? Will we be concerned about how we, we present ourselves before the Father? Will we, will we have a, an awareness? Will we... Will we have the priorities in our life that God is first above everything? Nothing, nothing comes before the Father? Because if we have these, if this is the attitudes we have, then we will live a life filled with grace. We will be, we will be like a, a drink of cool water on a hot day. We will be like rain in the scorching heat of the desert. To those around us. God has given us grace. 
for, unto salvation, but he's also given us grace for living. He's given us his grace that we might go forth and be his witnesses, that we might be examples unto those around us, that we would show forth, that we would show forth the grace of God in our lives. How will we live our life in light of God's grace? Well, Joshua summed it up pretty well for me. This is, this is, if I have a, if I have a, a life verse, this is it. Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that your testimony today? Can you stand before the Lord and say that? Can you stand as Paul did and say, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I hope we can. Because Jesus is coming again. And much sooner than we may think. So we better make sure we better make sure we have everything right and ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, Lord. Father, what we've done tonight is simply preach your word. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't deliver unto these dear people a, a bunch of sayings or a bunch of my own opinions. I read scripture after scripture after scripture. And, and that it's your word that, we're, that we're, we're dealing with tonight. So I pray, you'd, I pray you'd strengthen all of us. And Father, I pray you'd strengthen us to understand your grace and how wonderful and amazing it is. Thank you for this time. Thank you for those that have come. We ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.